Hello everyone, I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And thank you for joining us for episode 37 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. Today's episode is about the murder of Diana Peterson. However, based off of articles and reports I've read, I believe that her name was Diana, but that her friends and family and a lot of the wider media called her Dinah. So I will be referring to her as Dinah in this episode. So Dinah Peterson was born on the 19th of July 1958 to her parents George and Leanne Peterson. Dinah was one of nine children and she lived and grew up in Richmond Beach, Washington. In 1975, Dinah was 16 years old and every bit the stubborn, rebellious teenager that I'm sure many of us can relate to. Dinah had started dating a boy three years older than her. His name was Tim Dina and he was 19 years old and he was very popular at school. Tim drank and smoked and went to bars and he had parties almost every week. He lived in the house next door to Dinah and they met at one of his many gatherings. The door to his place was always open and people would come and go as they pleased, hanging out at his when they had nowhere else to go. George Peterson detested that his daughter was seeing Tim. George felt that Tim was too old for Dinah and that he was a bad influence. He had grounded Dinah to stop her going out and seeing Tim, but she would regularly sneak out late at night and slip into Tim's house anyway. February the 14th, 1975 was no different. It was Valentine's Day and Dinah really wanted to see Tim. Unfortunately, she was still grounded and wasn't allowed out, but her mum said that she could invite some friends over if she wanted to. Dinah had her friends over, a close girlfriend and a boy named James Groth. Dinah's family home had a basement where she would usually hang out with some of her friends, and this evening was no different. The three hung out in the basement and watched films and had a nice time, but by about 9.30pm they started to get hungry. Dinah went upstairs and pleaded with Leanne, her mum, to let them pop out to get some pizza, and Leanne agreed to let her daughter and her friends go. After all, Dinah was only grounded to stop her from seeing Tim. At 9.30, the group of friends left the Peterson family home and went to get pizza. Leanne, Dinah's mum, finished up what she was doing in the kitchen and then headed down to the basement to clean up after her daughter and her friends. When she got into the basement, she jumped. James Groth was still sitting down there. Leanne asked him what he was doing and told him that he needed to go home. James said that the girls hadn't invited him out for pizza and he was just waiting for them to come back. Leanne told him that it was late and it was time to go home. When Dinah came back, she was just going to be going to bed and their other friend was going back to her house after they'd eaten. James left and Leanne tidied up the basement. She then headed up to bed where her husband was already asleep. She got into bed and started reading her book and at about 10.30pm she heard Dinah come back home. Shortly after hearing this, she heard a shriek and some noises coming from the back garden. She got up and looked out the window. She described the shriek as playful and assumed it had been Dinah just messing around with one of her friends. She opened the window and whispered loudly at her daughter to keep the noise down. She saw two figures standing very closely together in the shadows of the garden. She called out Dinah's name, but there was no response. She assumed that her daughter had snuck out again as she often did and thought nothing more of it. Just before she was about to get back into bed, Dinah's dog started barking loudly downstairs, so Leanne went downstairs and opened the back door to let the dog out. She walked outside, called Dinah's name, but still there was no response, so she just went back to bed and fell asleep. The next morning, February 15th, 1975, George Peterson was in the kitchen making breakfast and getting himself ready to go to work when he heard a loud amount of barking coming from the back garden from Dinah's dog. He opened the door and went out to see where the dog was. 
He stopped dead in his tracks as he saw his daughter, Dinah, lying on the ground. He ran over to her and her body was cold. He checked for a pulse, but there wasn't one. His daughter's lifeless body was surrounded by blood. There was blood on the grass and on some of the rocks nearby, but there didn't appear to be any wounds on Dinah. He called 911 and when the police arrived, they found the same thing. There was lots of blood and clear signs of a struggle, but there was no blood on Dinah's front. Detective Grundon noticed two sets of fresh footprints by Dinah's body and he took photographs of each of these prints and prepared a cast for each footprint impression. When the medical examiner arrived, he turned over Dinah's body and found a large hunting knife sticking out of the middle of her back. Dinah's body was taken away and an autopsy revealed that the knife had pierced her lungs and heart and that she had died as a result of a collapsed lung from a single stab wound. Almost immediately, the police were working with a theory that Dinah knew her killer. They said that not many people travelled through Richmond Beach and Dinah's house wasn't on any main road or anything like that. It was likely that whoever had murdered her in her own garden would have known her. They spoke to her father, George Peterson, first. George told the police that he had grounded Dinah because she had been seeing a boy three years older than her. He said the boy's name was Tim and that he lived next door and that he had to ground Dinah because she wouldn't listen to him and she kept sneaking out to visit him. This led the police to look at George as their first suspect. In their eyes, he was a controlling father and they played out a scenario whereby George had been lying in wait ready to catch Dinah sneaking out. When he'd seen her sneak out to visit her boyfriend he hated, he got aggressive with her. They asked George whether he had lost his temper with Dinah and killed her, and George told the police that this was absurd. He'd been asleep from an early time and he hadn't even known that Dinah had gone out. More than that, he said that he would never hurt his daughter. Unfortunately, more suspicion was cast over George when the police searched his shed and found a number of hunting knives, similar to the one that had killed Dinah. Thankfully for George, however, their investigation took a different turn after Dinah's close friends were questioned. The police showed each of Dinah's friends a picture of the murder weapon and asked them if they knew who it belonged to. Each friend said that they had seen that knife before and that it belonged to Dinah's boyfriend, Tim Dina. As I mentioned earlier, Tim's home was always open to everyone and he held many gatherings there. On the mantelpiece in his basement bedroom, he had a knife positioned there in a stand as a sort of trophy and it was this knife that had been used to kill Dinah. The police brought Tim in for questioning and asked him where he had been on the night of February 14th. Tim said that he had gone out for the evening with a friend and that he'd gotten home at about 11. He said he'd heard Dinah's dog barking in the garden and he'd waited up on the sofa watching TV, hoping that Dinah would sneak out and come and see him. He said that he ended up falling asleep on the sofa and didn't wake up until the next morning when he heard the police arrive. Despite what I think is quite a weak alibi, the police believed him and moved on with their search. What? They began to work with the theory that maybe someone had gone into Tim's house whilst he had been out and had stolen the knife from his place and then used it as the murder weapon. That seems so much more extreme. Yeah, it does. It seems very extreme. It's very it's very bizarre, but obviously they did believe him in this instance. Yeah. So, the police re-questioned the people that Dinah had been with that night. The girlfriend that she had spent some time with was questioned, but she had a fairly airtight alibi. Witnesses from the pizza place they had visited put her there with Dinah, and then after this, her neighbour stated that she had come home around 10.30. The police believed that Dinah's time of death had been between 10.35 and 10.45, so this ruled her friend out. 15-year-old James Groth, however, didn't have an alibi. 
If you can remember, he was the boy who hadn't gone to get pizza with the girls and had in fact just stayed in the basement at Dinah's house waiting until Dinah's mum had sent him home. He told the police that when he had left Dinah's house, he had gone to a bowling alley. He said he stayed there until around half past midnight and then he said he'd gone to Tim's house to see if anyone was there to hang out with. He's 15. Mm-hmm, yeah. And he's I, just I out until... I mean, I find it weird enough that they all just went to get pizza at half nine at the risk of sounding <laughs> like a real square. Um, <laughs> like, they're all pretty young, do you know what I mean? Just to sort of be randomly going out to do, like, what's wrong with the takeaway? But for him to have just been in a bowling alley till midnight, is that not a bit weird? Yeah. Do you know, it's so funny because when I was researching, I had the same thing. I don't know if it's because it's like 1975 or whatever. I don't know. Maybe like it was just everything was a bit more lax then. But I would never dream of just going out for pizza at 9.30. I wouldn't know where to go. But like, I just thought it was such a weird thing. I honestly pictured it. Like, imagine us all being at your house and then being like to your mum, like, oh, we're just going to pop out and get pizza. Like, I don't think we would ever do that. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it feels like one thing to get get drive through. But to just go yeah out oh yeah and, oh that's yeah. so true I don't know it's maybe it's strange. that equivalent though yeah I, I think so. it might be that <laughs> but to be fair though like Dinah was grounded at this point and I understand his motive for grounding her was to do with Tim but I still think like if you're grounded I don't think you should be off out at half nine I don't know I just find this whole story very strange so far. Yeah, but to be honest, when you've just said that now, we used to go to drive-throughs at like midnight. Like we would, well, as soon as basically we could drive, we would always be out. Seeing yeah, I wouldn't go and ask my mum. Like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so if that's the weird bit, there's a story for you, Sal. Then I'm interested to see what you're going to think about the next bits. <laughs> So yeah, James Groth told the police that he'd uh, gone out to a bowling alley until half past midnight. Then he'd gone to Tim's house to see if anyone was there to hang out with. And when he'd gotten to Tim's house, he said Tim had been asleep. And so he had just gone back to the bowling alley. And after this, he went home. The detectives asked James to take a lie detector test, which James Groth took, but then failed. The police re-questioned him. And this time, James admitted to lying. He said that he had gone to the bowling alley, but didn't leave at midnight. He said that instead he had left at 10pm and went to Tim's place, but that nobody had been there. He said he then decided to just head home and he cut through Dinah's garden because he lived two doors down from Dinah. When he got to Dinah's garden, he said that he saw Dinah lying, quote, face down by the rockery with a knife handle sticking out of her back. He said he panicked and felt frightened and that he ran to Richmond Beach to think. He said he didn't tell anyone in case they thought it had been him. And he said that after having a think at the beach, he went back to the bowling alley and then he went home. The police tested this story under another polygraph and this time James Groth passed. The police interviewed another neighbour of Dinah's. This was a boy named Steve Larson. In the written statement taken by the detective during Steve's interview, the detective wrote that Steve had said that he had been out on the night of Dinah's murder and that he'd come home around midday on the 15th, the day Dinah's body had been found. Steve had had a conversation with James Groff and Tim Diener. The detective's statement of this conversation stated that Steve had said that James Groff had told him, Dinah's dead, I think she was probably beaten to death, to which Tim had responded and said, no, I think she'd been knifed. Due to this statement, the police focused back on Tim, curious as to how the boy had known that Dinah had been stabbed to death just hours after the police had found her body. The police searched Tim's home and his basement, and in his basement they found blood on some items of his clothing, and they sent these items off to be tested to see if it was the same blood type as Dinah. There's a surprise. (laughs) 
On the 19th of February, five days after Dinah's murder, the police arrested Tim. They took him back into the station and asked him to undergo a polygraph test. During this test, Tim told the same story he had told before. He said that he had been out with a friend and then come home. He said he'd waited for Dinah to come over, but that he'd fallen asleep watching TV and hadn't woken until the next morning when he heard the sirens from the police car. Tim failed this polygraph, and this threw the police into a bit of a tailspin. They had three suspects in their mind. Dinah's boyfriend, Tim, Dinah's father, George, and Dinah's friend, James. Then, the blood on Tim's clothes came back as a negative match to Dinah, and Tim's friend had given Tim an alibi for most of that night. Therefore, he was released the day after his arrest without being charged. Ooh. Many people, however, still felt that Tim was Dinah's killer. He went from being the most popular boy at school to being somebody no one would talk to. Adding to this, he still lived next door to Dinah's parents, and they despised him. Presumably, someone in the police asked him, how do you know she's been knifed? Uh... <laughs> yes, I'm just trying to build some suspense here, so I'll come back to that question later. Look at it. So Dinah's parents were absolutely furious at the fact that they lived next door to Tim, believing that he was Dinah's killer. And every time they saw him, they got angry because they were convinced that their daughter's killer was just roaming around free to do whatever he wanted. After a while, with no breaks in the case, the Peterson family decided to move away from Richmond Beach. They were sick of people constantly coming back to question George when they knew he had nothing to do with Dinah's death, and they wanted to move to a place where nobody knew of the tragedy they'd faced. Soon, Tim made the same move, and he also left Richmond Beach. New crimes happened in the area, and each time something else happened, it pushed Dinah's case to the bottom of the case pile. During this time, Ted Bundy was in full force, and the lead detective on Dinah's case was pulled away to join the Ted Task Force. Over time, her case went cold, and investigators stopped actively looking into who murdered her. Unfortunately, because of this, the murder of Dinah Peterson stayed a cold case for another 30 years. Like 30? 30, yeah. Blimey. Mm. Then, in 2006, new detectives reopened Dinah's case, ready to give it a look with fresh new eyes. When they opened the case, however, they found that almost all the evidence in the case had been thrown away. After some investigation, it appeared that a sergeant had ordered the destruction of the physical evidence in the case in 1987, despite two requests in 1976 and 1978 requesting that the physical evidence in the case be preserved indefinitely. The only things left in the case file were the original case notes, a few crime scene photos, and the murder weapon. Suspicious. Hmm. A little bit, yes. So the detectives looked through the old case notes and they disagreed with the original investigation focusing so closely on Tim Diener. They said that there was very little evidence pointing towards him. He was the only person who had a strong alibi and although the murder weapon was his, there were plenty of people who knew that the knife existed and that Tim's home was always open for people to come and go as they pleased. The new detectives instead focused on someone else that they felt the original investigators had dismissed too quickly. Do you want to guess who? Her dad. Nope. Oh, I had a 50% chance. <laughs> James Groff. Yes, they started looking into James Groff. So, the investigators noticed something strange about the notes that had been written regarding James's original statements to the police. He had obviously told the police two different stories about that night, one story about going to the bowling alley and staying there until half past midnight, and then the second story, 
the one that the polygraph had flagged as the truth, where he had said that he went to find Tim and that Tim hadn't been home, and then he'd cut across Dinah's garden to get home. In this statement, the detectives noticed that James has said that he had seen Dinah lying on the ground with a knife sticking out of her back. The thing was... <gasps> she was on her back when she was found. Exactly. Dinah had been found lying on her back, not on her front. Oh, I can't believe I missed that the first time. <laughs> So nobody, not even the police, first on scene, had known that Dinah had been stabbed in the back. Um, all they'd been able to see was the blood on the grass and the signs of a struggle. And, and it wasn't, of course, until the medical examiner had arrived that they turned over Dinah's body. No wound or any sort of cause of death had been visible. So how had James known that Dinah had been stabbed in the back? Furthermore, additional case notes made by the original detectives noted that James Groth had gotten into a fight just a few weeks after Dinah's murder. During this fight, he had pushed a boy to the floor and said, I killed one girl, I can kill again. It was very hard for the detectives to understand why this had never been followed up by the police at the time. Yes, yeah, sounds quite damning, doesn't mm, it? It does. So, certain that they were onto something, the detectives started looking into James Groth and his movements over the past 30 years. They found out that he had joined the army when he had been 17, and that after this he had moved to Alaska and had become a fisherman. They were interested to see that during his adulthood, James had been convicted three times for assaulting women. In May 2006, 31 years after Dinah Peterson was murdered in her own back garden, detectives flew to Alaska to find 49-year-old James Groth. Detective Allen, the new lead detective on the case, noted that James Groth didn't mention finding or seeing Dinah's body when they re-interviewed him in 2006. Detective Allen pointed this out to James and accused him of holding back information. James Groth teared up a little bit during the interview, and then he became agitated and angry. Detective Allen commented that James Groth hadn't once during this interview denied killing Dinah. After this, James Groth did deny it, but his denial was, quote, very weak. James Groth agreed to another interview with the detectives, in which he said he wanted to clear some things up, However, in this next interview, he didn't end up revealing any new information, despite alluding to the detectives that he had something important to tell them. The detectives theorised what they thought had happened on the night of Dinah's murder, and they posed to James that the girls were all watching TV in Dinah's basement, and that when they went to get pizza without James, it had made him feel left out. They said that when Dinah's mother asked James to leave, he had left and had gone to Tim's house. Tim, of course, wasn't home, and so James had stolen the hunting knife that Tim had on display on his mantelpiece. They then said that James had lay in wait in the bushes of Dinah's garden, waiting for her to sneak out to see Tim. When Dinah had snuck out, she'd seen James lurking in the shadows and had squealed because he had made her jump. This squeal was what Dinah's mother had heard when she'd thought that Dinah was messing around playfully in the back garden. When Dinah's mother had looked out the window and seen two shadows standing closely together, it had been Dinah and James, and James had been telling Dinah that she should be with him instead of Tim. Reports from old friends stated that James was in love with Dinah and wanted to be more than friends. The police theorised that James had made a move on Dinah, and when she had rejected his advances, James had stabbed her. They said that James then walked away, and that is how he knew that there had been a knife in Dinah's back, because he had been the one to put it there. It seems slightly odd, though, that he took the knife with him if his intention wasn't always to do something. Mm. Like, I don't, I mean, not that it particularly matters because we know that, like, the, yeah, the horrible outcome. But if he'd gone there just for the intention of getting with her, making mm. a move, 
Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know if... I almost wonder whether actually he'd gone there. He already felt so spurned by the fact that she hadn't gone out for pizza with them. I almost kind of wonder whether he'd gone there with the intention of hurting her. Like, you know, they'd left him at home, gone out for pizza. He'd spent hours brewing and fuming, had then, yeah, gone to Tim's to get the knife and then, like, yeah, laid in wait Mm. for her. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. I mean, I do have a massive problem with this, like, fictional story that essentially the police have made up. Like, I find it very... Um, it's one thing, isn't it? Having like a motive and having like a reason to doing something. But then this is this is basically a story that they've made up. Like they don't have any proof that this is what happened. So I do have like a serious issue with this, to be honest. But um, yeah, I do agree with your theory that if, um, if, you know, he had taken the knife from Tim's house to do this, then I definitely think that it was with the intention to hurt rather than, I don't know, just to look hard or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, and to be fair, I do. Yeah, I agree to your point as well, though, that I do always think it's dangerous in these cases when police make up narratives and stories because mm. actually I think generally, like, juries and the media, etc., really mm. fall for them. Like, storytelling is such a powerful thing. And I think a lot of the time, like, when cases don't get found guilty, it's because the story doesn't mm-hmm. make sense, whereas actually for the police to make up one that, to be fair, like, I, you know, I do buy into it. I think a lot of people would. Yeah, I do think it's quite dangerous without sufficient evidence underpinning it. But I suppose, you know, we know most of the evidence was destroyed Mm. 30 years later. Their only hope really at this point is confession, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think the thing is in this case, there is very little evidence. And yeah, short of a confession, they have to create this story that the jury will understand. Otherwise, they have nothing to present to the jury. But like you, I did find this incredibly difficult um, because there was no... There's no DNA on the murder weapon. There was no fingerprints. There was nothing. Um, So I did some digging and I found some, but not all of the witness and expert reports that were presented at the trial. So going back to what you said earlier, if you can remember, Steve Larson was the one uh, was one of the neighbors questioned in the days that followed Dinah's murder. um, And the detective had taken his statement and had written that James had said that Dinah had been beaten to death and that Tim had corrected him and said that she'd actually been, quote, knifed. And you kind of were like, well, how did Tim know that? Mm. Um, Well, at the trial, Steve Larson took the stand and said that he had a very vivid picture in his mind of that conversation and that he was certain that it had been James Groth who had used the phrase knifed and that it hadn't been Tim who had said that. Um, Larson also said that he was certain that he told the detectives this during the interview. So next, the prosecution brought um, the detective to the stand who had written that statement. And he said that it was likely that he may have inadvertently accidentally written Tim and James's names wrong in the statement and that it could very well have been told to him that it had been James who had indicated that Dinah had been stabbed and not Tim. Mm. So, I mean, incredibly negligent because that... the entire reason the police focused on Tim was because of that statement and the conversation that they believed this detective had had with Steve Larson. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, mistakes happen in terms of writing it down, but then to kind of like focus your investigation on it and completely forget the actual conversation you'd heard seems really mm-hmm. strange. Like you'd think it'd be one of those things where you'd look back and be like, oh, I got those names the wrong way around. Not, yeah. oh, this is what I've written. So it must be absolutely true. I'm not going to think mm. about it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so pretty damning, to be fair. Um, So another witness who testified against James Groth was a man named Eric Hansen. And he was the boy who had gotten into a physical fight with James Groth about six weeks after Dinah's murder. 
he testified on the stand that James had said to him, I've killed a girl and I can kill again. Uh, this obviously was quite compelling. However, the defence chalked this up to James being a 15-year-old boy who said things for effect and bravado and that he hadn't actually meant that he had killed Dinah when he made this threat towards Eric Hansen. Oh, rubbish. If you weren't... You wouldn't boast about killing a girl. I mean, I know obviously in this case James did, but if he was just kind of a boy making up half-hearted threats, I don't think like you'd specify. You, you'd surely be more likely to say, I don't know, I've killed a big bloke. Up. Yeah, I'll beat yeah. someone up or yeah, wrestled an alligator. I think there's not a lot of pride in having killed a woman. Like even in prisons, it's more of a frowned upon crime than, do you know what I mean? Like in the hierarchy of crimes, mm. it's mm-hmm. judged sort of even by criminals. So yeah, I just think that's a ridiculous defence. It is ridiculous. And also it's just not something you would say after your friend has just been murdered. Like yeah. he considered Dinah to be like one of his best friends. So I think that, yeah, 15-year-old boy saying things for effect and bravado, I can buy into that. But I cannot buy into the fact that he would say that, oh, I killed a girl when your friend, who is a girl, has just been killed. Mm, agree. So additionally to this, the prosecution presented an expert witness named Joel Hardin. And when I looked into what his expertise was, all I could find was that he is referred to as a master tracker. And I don't really know what that is. But um, basically, Detective Allen had given Harding some photos of the crime scene and a photograph of Dinah's shoes and photos of James Groth's shoes that he had worn in 1975. Detective Allen asked Harding to see if he could place either of those shoes at the crime scene based on the photos. Harding said that there were two clear and distinct footprints at the crime scene, one pair that had a stars and bar print on the bottom and another pair that had a flat sole. The stars and bar shoe print was consistent with the sole of James Groth's Vibram boot and the other flat sole was consistent with the wallaby shoe that Dinah had been wearing. Harding testified that, having examined the crime scene photos, he could determine that, quote, two people were in the same area, moving their feet about, but not really going anywhere, at virtually the same time. Hardin also testified that the individual wearing the boots with the star and bar print had stepped in Dinah's blood at approximately the same time the blood had dripped onto the ground. Ah, this, I'm just like, am I being a bit dense, but how could you possibly know that from a photograph? Um, I think probably is slightly hard from a photo, but actually I don't doubt that there is ways and means of telling in terms of like how the blood was distributed um, or, yeah, obviously like the different souls and things. I think it's one of those skills like blood spatter, like ballistics, where actually I'm always really impressed when I hear expert witnesses talk on stuff like that in crimes. And a lot of the time I find myself being sat there like, oh my God, of course, like just completely unrelatable. You know, the other day I was uh listening about how you could tell whether someone was like alive or dead when they went into water and mm. it sounds really obscure but actually once someone explains it so to be honest i know i agree with you from a photo that sounds quite the conclusion but actually i mean if he's dedicated his life to studying this it may well be one of those expert fields where actually he's got loads of really valid reasons for reaching that conclusion so i mean mm. i probably would buy into it okay good job you've convinced me <laughs> <laughs> If only you were there on the day, Sally, to convince the defence's expert, because they brought in a (laughs) forensic expert named William Bodziak, um, and he disagreed with Hardin's conclusion. And he testified that there was no evidence of two shoe prints from the photograph. He could not see where two sets of shoe prints, quote, intermingled. And he said that it was not possible to determine at what point a shoe print was made in the ground. Um, I thought that they literally described two different soles of shoes, though. 
Yeah, and they have. So I don't really know how he's rebutting that. But he's basically saying that based off of the same photographs that he's seeing, he can't see two different footprints. That's what he's saying. Right, okay. Um, so, I mean, it's 1975 when these photos are taken. It's very difficult, isn't it? But I know from earlier, um, they had taken at the time, I, d- I did say this, I don't know if you can remember, where they took like a plaster cast of mm. the molds. So there was definitely two distinct footprints there, but obviously those have been destroyed. So I think, um, I don't know if maybe the defense were kind of trying to argue that maybe the prosecution's expert witness was possibly swayed by the fact that the police would have told him there were two footprints we took two different casts but unfortunately they've been uh thrown away they you know they've been destroyed uh can you look at this photo and see if you can see two different footprints and then because he you know maybe thought there were two footprints there or whatever then he could see them but i think they were blown up and they were seen under a magnifying glass so i don't think it was like very 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 clear i think it was open to interpretation and the defense have kind of just jumped on that yeah and i mean expert witnesses there's always one on either side isn't there who have different things to Mm. say so it's yeah not unreasonable that they would disagree but i'm guessing Mm. so that just cancel out both or did the judge lean on the side of one witness over another no, so they both would have presented it at the trial and it would have been up to the juries on who they believe more, basically. Mm. Um, so the defence kind of stated in their final conclusion that the police didn't know who killed Dinah Peterson and that James Groth didn't know who killed Dinah Peterson, but all that James knew was that it wasn't him. In the prosecution's closing statement, they asked the jury to rectify the mistakes that the police had made in 1975 when they had focused on the wrong suspect and let the real perpetrator roam free for 31 years. The prosecution asked the jury to find James Groth guilty, and that is exactly what they did. The jury found James Groth guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to a maximum term of life imprisonment with a minimum term of 200 months, which is just over 16 years. Therefore, he will be eligible for parole in 2025. Wow, that's amazing. Such a long time after it happened. Were her family ecstatic? Were they, did they, were they, were they there in court? Did they make any... They were there in court. Yeah, they were over the moon because obviously after 30 years, they just thought that, that it had been forgotten about and yeah, that it no wasn't ever going to be solved. Mm, exactly. So massive, massive kudos to the detectives who did reopen this file in 2006 and actually wanted to get it solved. I think that's incredible. Um, and with so little evidence as well. Um, yeah, I think that it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, they picked up on a lot of things that the original police didn't. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of why the prosecution made a big point of saying, you know, like the police did really mess this up. So you as the jury can rectify that and you can help this family now. Yeah, and I find it really bizarre, to be honest, that it was just left to go cold. Like, I know they didn't think they had a lot to go on, but actually three suspects is a hell of a lot more than a lot of cases that go on to get solved has. So, Mm -hmm. like, the initial police investigation, I'm just really surprised it ground to a halt. And I think there's no doubt looking back, and I'm sure probably the police would even say it themselves, like, particularly with regard to, like, James' statement, they did miss Mm. some really key bits of information. But actually, all of that aside, this was a you know, just shy off a child murder. She wasn't Mm. very old. She was a young female. All of the things that actually instill a lot of fear into, like, communities and things. And Mm. even though all the suspects they had were known to her, etc., I'm just surprised that, like, the neighbouring 
areas didn't kind of demand that they found someone and know. you know and in this case actually I wonder if if they had been under that kind of pressure whether they might have ended up prosecuting the wrong person just because you know as we've heard they seem to be pursuing like the incorrect leads but mm. normally in cases like this I think there's a huge push from like the public to want to know who did it and to want to see someone be put behind bars because actually it was a girl young girl murdered in her own home I mean yeah that for a lot of people and you know someone's child taps well into their biggest fears doesn't it so yeah i think it's weird that it wasn't uh yeah dealt with better at the time weird that it kind of went cold relatively quickly and just amazing that when it was reopened they managed to find the right person and get justice because i do think based on the evidence you've presented i do think it sounds like james did murder her yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? I don't know. Like, It's up to you, really. But I basically, I found this case really hard. Um, I agree with you. I do think that he probably did do it, but I do find the lack of evidence quite overwhelming. So I did like more digging into all the evidence in the case that was destroyed and looked up findings from his motion to dismiss the murder charge on the basis that the evidence was destroyed and, and this violated due process. So I have a rough set of notes on this if you want to hear it. It's up to you, really. Mm-hmm. So... Right. How will I present this? So for those of you who don't know, the, uh, due process rights are basically like the rights that guarantee a person has the right to the law being applied to their case fairly before they can be imprisoned. So destruction of evidence can constitute a violation of due process if that evidence is material um, exculpatory evidence. So material evidence that would help a defendant's case, like, say, DNA evidence that someone else other than the defendant was at the crime scene um, and if this material exculpatory evidence was destroyed the motivation of the law enforcement who destroyed it would have to be looked into so basically whether they destroyed it in bad faith to ensure that the defendant was found guilty so I am curious about that like why it mm. was destroyed mm. well yeah it's kind of very difficult ultimately we don't know why it was destroyed but when looking at this motion and whether or not to you know accept it or dismiss it they did have to look at what the motivations of the law enforcement officer was um so essentially the state can destroy evidence that is not exculpatory so evidence that may only be potentially useful and so destroying this evidence doesn't violate due process doesn't violate due process unless the defendant can prove that the police or law enforcement officer destroyed it in bad faith and they couldn't in this instance so there was a lot of physical evidence collected in this case that was then destroyed so there was those plaster cast impressions that i just mentioned um, about the shoe prints that were found in the garden there were samples of diner's blood there was clothing hair fingernail scrapings uh, tim dina's boots and clothing that had been taken as well as blood samples taken from the scene there were lab reports that analysed all the findings that came from the testing um, of all the kind of above-mentioned items. And there were conclusive reports that came from the forensic testing, like the conclusive report that said that the blood found on Tim's clothes did not match Dinah's blood type. James Groth basically said that this evidence that was destroyed was exculpatory uh, because the detectives had this evidence in 1975 and he wasn't arrested in 1975. So... To him, he was like, well, it, obviously this evidence didn't point to me because they would have arrested me in 1975 if it had. And he basically claimed that if this evidence had still been available, it would have proved that he didn't do it, which would, all, of course, make this evidence exculpatory. So the court rejected this and they said that the evidence was not exculpatory because the evidence was all analysed and tested in 1975. Um 
and nothing pointed to anything that would help exonerate James Groth or help his case. So yeah, the it's court not like found... it helped convict someone else at the time. So exactly. I, I'd see where James is coming from in terms of like applying the law, but actually it might have been conclusive that the blood wasn't Diana's on Tim's clothes. But actually, for the most part, I don't think you would say it was that conclusive because it didn't particularly incriminate anyone. So yeah, I agree with you about that same token. It didn't exonerate anyone. Exactly. And that's what the court said. They were just like, well, it's true that you weren't arrested, but you were a suspect and you were never ruled out of a suspect. Mm. So yeah, like if there's evidence pointed to someone else, then they would have arrested someone else. If there's evidence pointed to you, they would have arrested you. You're right. It didn't help anyone in, in anything, which is maybe why it was destroyed. Um, kind of adding to this, James Groth also wasn't able to show that the law enforcement officer who destroyed the evidence had done so in bad faith. So therefore, there had been no violation of due process. And then when I looked further into this case, it appeared that James Groth had made several appeals, especially regarding kind of like the validity of the evidence against him. Um, and in one of the reports I read, it said, uh, actually, do you know, what? I'm just going to read this verbatim. It said, Although circumstantial, the evidence against James was substantial. His infatuation with Dinah and jealousy of her relationship with Tim gave him a motive for the Valentine's Day murder. James had access to the murder weapon and he knew that Dinah had been knifed before anyone else did, including family and police. And within weeks after the murder, James told a peer that he had killed a girl and could do it again. James's statement to the police also points to his guilt. He failed to disclose that he had seen Dinah's body during his initial police interview. When he later admitted he had, he stated he found her dead, face down, with a knife in her back. But the forensic evidence indicated that this could not be so. Dinah was likely immobilised within minutes after she was stabbed, could not have been face down for more than a few moments, and she died on her back. For James to have seen Dinah face down, he had to have been there while she was still alive. Yet James claimed he confirmed she was dead by pushing her with his shoe before running off. He also claims she was covered with blood on her back and hands. This too would not have been observable within minutes of the stabbing. When the police interviewed James in 2006, he again failed to mention discovering Dinah's body until prompted. He became angry when pressed for details. He was sullen and tearful when the detectives accused him of holding back information or having been involved in the crime. He nodded when detectives suggested that he had something important to say, such as that he was there at the time of the murder or had some explanation. Finally, Hardin testified that the person wearing the Stars and Bars pattern shoes was with Dinah when she was stabbed, that only one person made those prints and that the prints were consistent with James Groth's footwear. James Groth argues the evidence points as clearly to Tim as it does to him. That is not so. Although Tim's knife was the murder weapon, the evidence established that Tim's home was always unlocked and its contents, including the knife, were accessible to anyone. James Groth had been in Tim Dina's home frequently and knew about the knife. Further, the evidence was that Tim was with friends until around 11pm and that Dinah was stabbed before then. James Groth points to Tim's reluctance to cooperate with the police after he was arrested and released, but Tim had retained counsel and had been advised not to speak to the police. He nevertheless permitted police to seize the clothes he wore on the night of the murder, and once the investigation resumed in 2006, Tim Dina cooperated further. So, I know that was a bit wordy, but I kind of hope that it was helpful to hear because it was certainly helpful to me when I read it. It came kind of directly from the reports that came from his dismiss, um, his appeals that were then dismissed. So, um, it's, it's basically like a judgment from the court. And it did make me understand the evidence in the trial better. After reading that, I do kind of understand why he may have been convicted. Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of, I was before leaning towards the fact that he was guilty, but now I'm like almost certain that he definitely was. 
Yeah, no, I definitely think he was. Because I think as well, yes, some of it's circumstantial, but actually the they were able to, in this trial, find the primary source of that. So, you know, the boy that he beat up, the yeah. officer who made the mistake, they were able mm-hmm. to... So I think it kind of like stops being hearsay and actually this is coming direct from the people and and in this case where it's 30 years gone i i do think that's possibly as as close as you can get and who knows maybe it's because 20 minutes ago we heard the story that the police concocted and i've fallen for it <laughs> uh and have now decided that that's true but actually mm. i kind of agree when you hear the a report like that which like summarizes it i do think it makes sense i do think there was a motive he was close to her yeah, he had as much access to the murder weapon as Tim. And yeah, I think his behaviour is very strange. And I, what I think is the hardest thing to refute is that obviously his claim that he saw her um, mm-hmm. lying on her front. I just think that is a real... It's a classic slip, isn't it, that you see in cases yeah. where someone's almost walks away and then they just happen to overstep with the knowledge they should know. And I think mm. that's quite a common way that people do get caught, unfortunately. And it might not be the kind of hardcore DNA evidence that we like in a case, but actually I kind of think it's close to a confession in some ways, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Because it would be one thing saying, oh, when I walked through the garden, I saw her lying on her front. You could be like, mm, like, would you, you could maybe argue that away like it was dark, that kind of thing. But yeah. saying I saw her lying on her front and there was a knife sticking out of her back, that is just, you are absolutely just stating exactly how she died. And no one else knows that other than the medical examiner and the police. And you know yeah. what? Like 20 minutes ago, the police didn't even know that. So yeah, I think... I think it is irrefutable, like you said. And I do agree with you. Yes, there are some points in this that maybe, you know, sound a bit like hearsay or whatever. But actually, when everyone kind of got on the stand and testified, I agree with you. That then becomes valuable evidence in this case against him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, some of it might feel quite like a passing comments, etc. But I think sometimes that that is all there is. There's not always going to be like an eyewitness who saw exactly what happened and knows the whole truth and, and what went on that night. Sometimes I think it is just piecing together, you know, little statements that people have heard and, or experienced in order to try and like find the truth. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So I really, in the end, happy ending I guess to this really really awful case and just so amazing for Dinah's family that they finally finally got the justice they deserved and they got to see someone put behind bars for what what he did to their daughter because they must yeah I hope that they just found a bit of peace because I can't imagine how angry I'd be like 30 years having Mm. lost my child and not having any answers so yeah Mm. I just hope for that for them it just provided some relief despite what they'd already been through yeah so do I so do I um so thank you everyone for listening we really appreciate you guys coming back every week and listening to us um please 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 if you haven't left a review yet on apple podcast please consider doing so because it really helps us out so much and thank you to those few people who did after last week's episode um if you would like to support the show and get extra content then you can do so over at patreon your support means a lot and it does really help out um you can also see photos and uh, engage with us over on instagram and facebook at infraction.thepod so We will see you next week, I think, for our final episode of 2020. Oh my God, don't, can't believe that. (laughs) We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.